Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Episode 5, Meter and Rhyme. Greetings and salutations to the fifth episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. I'm your guide on this gamble through gothic romance, Stella. There won't be any continuity for this show, but I do suggest maybe starting with episode 1 if you've never read Jane Eyre, and then of course you can hop around to what interests you. Unfortunately, listeners, I lied to you. After Dr. Lappin came on, I said that was probably the only guest I would ever have. But here on this episode, I have my second guest and a poet. Rita Maria Martinez is a writing consultant for Nova Southeastern University, where she teaches composition workshops for nursing students and tutors undergraduate and graduate students. Martinez is also an independent reading and writing tutor. Her poetry appears in various literary journals and magazines, including Gulfstream Magazine and Tiger Tail, a South Florida poetry annual. Her work also appears in the eighth edition of Three Genres, the writing of fiction, literary nonfiction, poetry, and drama and in the anthology Burnt Sugar, Kanya Kemada, Contemporary Cuban Poetry in English and Spanish. Martinez has been a featured author at the Miami Book Fair International, at the Society of the Four Arts in Palm Beach, Florida, and at the Palabra Pura Reading Series, sponsored by the Guild Literary Complex in Chicago. She earned an MFA in Creative Writing from Florida International University. The Jane and Bertha in Me has received favorable reviews by the Victorian Network Journal, by the Bronte blog, and by blogger Nicola Fryer, also known as the Bronte Babe. Fryer compiled a list of the best Bronte books she read in 2018, and the Jane and Bertha and Me ranked number one. On the diary of an eccentric blog, Edna Eden Ramos listed the Jane and Bertha in Me as her favorite poetry collection of 2016. The Jane and Bertha and Me was a finalist for the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize, and a semifinalist for the Word Works Washington Poetry Prize. The poem, Sinjin Rivers Pops the Question, was also nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Please welcome to the show, Rita Maria Martinez. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure to be able to share and interact with you and with fellow Bronteites today. 
<laughs> the, the best people on the planet, I think. They are. What is to even, to just to get it started and as a warm-up, what is your history with Jane Eyre, the source material? Well, I first encountered Jane Eyre in high school. I was a junior taking a British Lit course, and it was one of the required reading books. So one of them was Jane Eyre, and, and Wuthering Heights was also one of the required reading books. But the teacher taught Jane Eyre first, and I remember she was very bubbly, our teacher, and very enthusiastic about getting to teach Jane Eyre. And I, I just remember her saying that she had reread it over the summer and that it was going to be a lot of fun. Um, she kind of like seemed really excited about it. I don't know if that motivated me at the time, but that's kind of how I came to it. Now, th th I'm going to give a preface to this next question <laughs> just so it doesn't seem like it's odd what I'm asking. But I w am particularly interested in, in people's identities and how they identify themselves. And you, in reaching out to me, you had very plainly said, you know, I'm a, a Cuban American poet, and I think even your Twitter has a Cuban Brontite, I think is, is your handle. And I feel like we always meet literature where we are and who we are at a particular time, and, and we just all have distinct experiences. So that's all the preface. My question is, does the work speak to your Cuban heritage or background in a unique way that maybe other people reading it that aren't Cuban might not experience? Well, there's a couple of markers or there's a couple of references. I don't think it like I think they're kind of subtle or I don't think they I don't think they're super obvious. I think that the first poem in in uh in the Jane and Bertha in me, it it talks about my first experience reading it. So there's certain things like my father's banana trees and eating crackers uh, slathered with guava jelly and just things like that. Because in Jane Eyre, e even though Jane is always saying that she's okay with being pl uh, plain and obscure and mm -hmm. and we know she's, she's not wealthy, or at least when the n novel begins, there's still a little bit of a sense of she wouldn't probably wouldn't have minded it if she had been born rich. Like, who would? But there's like a reference. I have a poem in there that is about, well oh, what's the worst case scenario if Jane inherits a lot of money and she becomes kind of materialistic? And there's just references to, like, you know, being in a dollar store and looking at Salcedo Santas and just things like that, that, you know, a couple of little Spanglish things here and there that for me would kind of be normal just because uh, I grew up in a household where my father was bilingual. He spoke English and Spanish. My mother uh, spoke only English, I mean, excuse me, only Spanish most of the time. And then my experience in school, I was in a bit of a bubble. I went to a private Catholic school, but most of the students were Cuban-American kids like me, you know, like first generation. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we were all bilingual. I mean, we spoke only English, really, when we were at school, but most of us were, were bilingual. So we were in a little bit of a... I was in a little bit of a bubble in kinder through eighth and in high school in terms of classmates and things like that. I don't know if that really answers your question, Stella. 
No, no, I think it does. I think it certainly, yeah, starts to to get at that. And it was actually something that I was anticipating a great deal before I started reading your collection because I, I really wanted to see and expected to see a lot of Spanish and Cuban influence in these poems. And I was a little surprised that I really only encountered a couple sections, or I, I suppose just two sections that had, um, you know, vocabulary that I had to reach out and ask, what does this mean? Oh, was okay. there any, you know, pushback? Did you want to include more? And maybe editors or, or whoever was, was overseeing this maybe thought, you know, not too much of that? Or was this just as is? No, I felt very comfortable with it, like in the shape it's in now. Initially, the Jane poems were initially a chapbook, and then I expanded the chapbook into a full manuscript. My thesis, the middle section, were Jane poems, and the, there were other poems like throughout my thesis. And the last section in my thesis is a poem called Virgen de Recuerdos, which means Virgin of Memories, and that's like a, a long extended poem. It's like over 10 pages. And that's a poem that I wrote that deals a lot with immigration, uh, parents coming from Cuba, uh, what it was like and how being Cuban American impacted me growing up. So that's, that is addressed in my work, but not so much in this book. Gotcha. Okay. How if that makes you, any sense. It, it does. It yeah. does. How did you end up getting into poetry? I took an introduction to, creative writing course as an undergraduate in college. We did some workshopping in that class. Uh, we would read sample poems and sample short stories and things like that. And uh, we had to write some poems and a short story. The funny thing is I, I mainly took that course because I had a friend who begged me to take it with her because she was kind of like, she really wanted to write poems, but she was like a little insecure about like, being in that class and uh, mm. we both signed up for that class so that's sort of where I first started writing poetry I didn't really write poetry in in high school per se but I was always a reader and I always you know I always from a young age enjoyed reading a lot do you find that poetry is easier for you to compose than perhaps prose I think sometimes it depends on the subject, on the subject matter. I think the one that's really tough for me is fiction. It's, it's mm. just not my, it's just really not my forte. And I think also people who write novels, I respect them a lot, the type of commitment that that entails. Uh, usually prose that I write tends to be prose poems. It's just a slightly different mindset for me. Writing poems is kind of neat in that you get to uh, control certain factors more. The poet has certain tools in their uh, toolkit that they can use, like uh, where are you going to break the line? Are you going to jam the line? You know, certain cool things that mm -hmm. poets get to do that other writers don't, you know, because of the genre or the style of their writing, they don't, they don't get to employ as much. So... It, it depends. Um, sometimes if, if let's say I've wanted, I'm writing, I have a prose poem I've been working on lately that is about like misophonia and it, it's, it's a prose poem. So it's in a block format. It's in, it's mm -hmm. in a block. And I kind of wanted the, the shape of the poem to convey the message of sort of feeling boxed in or entrapped. 
So sometimes it depends on what your subject matter is. God, do, do you, I, I always feel like poetry gets a bad rap because people, I think, dismiss it so easily because at times it is difficult to understand or, you know, what is authorial intent? What am I supposed to be getting out of this? That sort of thing. Do you feel like... The, your collection here might be, I'll say, like, new user-friendly since we were joking about technology before we started recording here. Mm -hmm. But couldn't people potentially jump into your collection here more easily maybe than others? Well, I I think maybe, like, a more pertinent question might be more like people who haven't read Jane Eyre and maybe aren't into poetry, how would they react to it? I've been told mm -hmm. in the past, like when many of these poems were initially workshopped, like I've had people who never read Jane Eyre who said, oh, I like this or that poem, like, or they had read several of the poems and they kind of caught the gist of it, even though they had never read Jane Eyre. Like there's some poems that speak of some experiences that are common to people, like being in the park uh, with your loved one being a high schooler and let's say not knowing exactly what you're going to do with your life and you have the bad luck of coming across, let's say, a, a guidance counselor that you're not thrilled about, right? Mm -hmm. Or just about how do you deal with a breakup? Like what are the behaviors that you exhibit? Do you deal, did you deal with that well or not? These are some of the things, uh, some of the themes that run throughout the book. And I think some of those are somewhat universal, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Blanche Ingram. There's a yeah. poem in the vo in the voice of Blanche Ingram, and who's Blanche Ingram? She's like the mean girl. She's the mean girl everybody loves to hate, you know. Yeah, that was certainly a question for the end of the show, but we can skip to it of of whether you could read these without having read Jane Eyre. I've been told yes, but I guess it depends on the person. Now, if you've read some Bronte biographies or any of the correspondence. I'm always, you know, fascinated by like Charlotte Bronte's correspondence. I own like these three big, thick, heavy volumes of her correspondence that are edited by Margaret. I'm blanking out on the last name right now. I think it's Margaret Smith, but the first name is Margaret. They're like amazing. And each letter has like a universe of footnotes after after them I find that like even more like interesting sometimes than biographies but you know yeah if you're a hardcore Bronteite there's probably going to be more things that you might pick pick up on etc um mm -hmm. I have found that in terms of people online who have purchased the Jane and Bertha in me um most of them are Jane Eyre fans okay I think that probably makes sense for sure yeah <laughs> they're they're looking for Jane Eyre paraphernalia and you you pop up along there yeah that uh, as you're talking about some of these tomes that you have that was actually a question I had about what sort of research you conducted because before several poems I would say there are quotations from different either correspondences or other works and so I wondered what you had done um, so that answers that potential question but I also wondered if you had read the other works that you mentioned like Jane Slayer which is on my list to do yes and why Sargasso Sea and all that did you read these before beginning this poetry sure. or did you begin this and and then kind of go off on on other straights and and find other adaptations of Jane and start bringing them into your poems 
I had not read White Sargasso Sea. I read it at some point in the midst of writing the poems. What I used to do is that I felt like the Jane Eyre poems were a universe that that I knew. I felt that Jane Eyre, the novel itself, was a universe that I knew well. Sort of like when you watch a soap opera five days a week, that you know the universe of the characters. Like, you know, sure. who are the good people, who are the bad people, uh, what's the town like. You, it's a universe that I felt comfortable with. I know that I reread the novel, obviously, several times. What I used to do is that if I would felt like I needed inspiration for new ideas for additional poems is usually when I would read other yeah, other outside material. And at times when I had needed a little break from writing the Jane poems, then that's when I would write other, you know, other types of poems that weren't, mm-hmm. that aren't in this book. That So it was a good balance, I suppose, of going back and forth. But yes, I read during that time, I read Wide Sargasso Sea. I read not Margaret's letters, but I read not Charlotte's letters edited by Margaret. But I read um, I read some of the letters. I read a biography. Other stuff that I read was the Oxford Book of Short Stories. Obviously, I was reading poetry by contemporary by contemporary authors. Mm-hmm. I reread the Yellow Wallpaper, the short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I read some some material that was Bronte related and then I read other things that were not Bronte related. Like I read there's an author named Paula Kamen, K A M E N, who has chronic migraine and I read her book and her book is really it's like a memoir/research book. So where she talks about her experiences having chronic daily headaches and migraines. And I came across in some of the letters that Charlotte wrote about, like, her headaches. And I have chronic daily headaches and migraines. So there's a sonnet, there's a crown of sonnets in the book that is about Charlotte's headaches, my headaches, writing, and also about uh, some of the experiences Charlotte Perkins Gilman had when, you know, when a doctor was treating her when she had sort of a mental breakdown. So... It, it was. It wasn't. I don't think it wasn't any one thing. It was like a, a wide variety of different things. But definitely, if I felt, sometimes I felt that if I was dry, I needed to like replenish or become full again in order to then, you know, write them again. Is there one besides Jane Eyre, of course? Is there one work that you would recommend a Jane Eyre fan that you really enjoyed? I really enjoyed reading Charlotte Bronte's letters. Okay. Very, very much. But um, there's other things. There's uh, I have an online buddy named Diane Denton, and she wrote a story. Uh, she wrote a novel, like a fictional point of view of Anne. I thought that was a really interesting one, and Anne is sometimes overlooked, uh, mm. or her, t- her writings aren't taught as much. I, I did enjoy reading... Jane Slayer. Yeah. I know that there's people, though, who are purists who like, they're like, I'm never going to read that. And that's fine. It, it's a little bit <laughs> over the top toward the end. But okay. what I liked about that mashup book is that I thought, well, if you like Jane Eyre, this is a new way of approaching Jane Eyre. Because I think everyone mm-hmm. who reads Jane Eyre 
most people remember their initial experience of what that was like of or of reading a book that you really, really loved and you enjoyed. What was that experience like the first time you read that book? So I thought maybe I could like recreate for myself, experience some of that like initial, recapture some of those initial feelings from when I read Jane Eyre by reading Jane Sayre, if that makes uh, any sense. Oh, no, it does. Yeah, it is. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I'm I'm going to read it knowing, yeah, well, this isn't Jane exactly. Eyre, but still have fun with it. Exactly. I mean. Yeah, and I enjoyed Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, so I feel like it'll be Then I think you would thing. enjoy it, and you, you yes. would just give yourself permission to enjoy it. And I read all Absolutely. different kinds of things. I read comic comic books a lot so I'm not you know I read a lot of different types of things and eh, you know I'm okay with that as long as you take joy from that contemporary poets they get ideas and through the writings of other contemporary poets but they also get ideas you know from pop culture and from the world that sort of surrounds us absolutely yeah if Charlotte were alive today do you think she would approve I don't know. <laughs> rather, oh, I just wonder. She could be rather, I don't know, sometimes she was unpredictable in her life. Like Thackeray, the author of uh, Vanity Fair, like, like oh, dinner gosh, yeah. in her honor. And she didn't really talk to anybody. She ignored everybody except like the governess. And like, of course, spent the evening chatting with the lady and ignoring everybody else. So, I mean, who knows? I've told my husband, not, I am not a celebrity or anybody famous, but I've told him, you know, when I kick the bucket, please throw, burn or throw out all my journals. So it's like, uh, how would she feel about like, because Bronteites were kind of a, an obsessive bunch. Like, like we really want to know a lot about what, what, what was it like living in the, in the parsonage? Um, uh, and, you know, all the gossip and the juicy kind of bits. So I don't know that she'd be thrilled about people writing about, you know, let's say that she was in love with one of her professors or, you know, certain private things that we kind of know about. Right. Like because yeah. we all like our privacy. I think yeah. she would be delighted that so many people are reading Jane Eyre, though, that there's students and there's readers of all ages and from different walks of life who are reading about the book and and I think also learning about like what what life was like back then what's different what's changed what's has stayed the same we know that she read reviews you know she mm -hmm. she kept on top of following the reviews and and everything that she did I'm consoled by the fact that that uh, Charlotte Bronte and, and the sisters, like when I feel discouraged, I remember that the three sisters published a book of poetry right. and they had to pay for that. They paid for, you know, sort of like a vanity press kind of thing. And it sold, I believe, only two or three copies. The rest they had to give away. Hmm. So if you're a poet and you're having a down day and you think about that, you're a success. Because <laughs> they only sold like two or three books. So it's always yeah. been hard to be a writer. What I find really amazing mm -hmm. is like just because, you know, when all her family members, you know, started passing away one after the other, that she went through some very difficult times. And I wonder, I'm so amazed kind of that I think she was prolific considering 
the shortness of her life and all the things that happened in her life. Absolutely. And, and you know, they always say that the, what is it, the best compliment is is imitation, right? So The sincerest form of flattery is imitation. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, I've read some duds, so she might be somewhat disappointed, <laughs> but I, I think she would also be happy she about it. She likes some Bronte fans. Others, maybe not so much. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And uh, you said you aren't a celebrity, but hey, after this podcast, you're very much know, maybe, ma'am. <laughs> so just be aware. <laughs> How did you decide to organize the collection? That is something that I always think about, whether it's in uh, a gallery and art and how it's being pinned up or in the written word like this. So how did you decide to organize all the poems? And then if you could also talk about those three sections, Femme Covert, The Gothic Grotesque, and Promiscuous Reading, if you could talk about those two. Okay. Initially, like I said, the poems were in the middle section of my thesis. And initially, like half of this book was initially published as a chapbook. And that was just as just one, one big section, right? Then mm -hmm. as I added more poems, added and added more poems, eventually I divided them into the three sections, Femme Covert, The Gothic Grotesque, and Promiscuous Reading. Um, under Femme Covert, um, not, not all of them, but some of the poems in this section were some of the earlier poems. So some of the poems in here are Reading Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre in the uh, Jungle Room, Jane Addresses Edward. Some of these were more driven by the text, I think. Uh, some of these in the triptychs, three-part poems, they were more driven by vocabulary or images or uh, seen from from the text. Like if we look at, there's one called Mortification Triptych, right? And that's in on page 32 of the book. It's So it's a three-part poem. Part one is titled, Master John Reed Punishes Jane for Hiding in the Curtain Window Seat and Reading His Copy of Bewick's History of British Birds. So obviously that's my way of recreating that scene in the book because who we've all been kind of outraged or at least I hope you know when you read that scene and her cousin he's just such a jerk low life and I just you know he's like another character you love to hate so I just kind of like that scene always I don't know if it was because I was occasionally bullied as a kid but that scene just sort of I thought it would be interesting to sort of rewrite it in my own way or expand upon it. And then part two is called Locked in the Red Room. So we know that has to do with basically what it says, right? When she's living at Gateshead and she's kind of punished, I was trying to capture like, well, what did she feel like when that happened? And then part three is sentenced to the stool. And that has to do with when she's, you know, at Lowood, that she was a little bit klutzy and her slate fell. And then Brocklehurst uh, has her kind of punished and humiliated in front of everybody. So some of these are some of these in the first and in part of Gothic Grotesque are kind of a little bit more inspired directly from the text. The Gothic Grotesque in that one, I wanted to have some poems that express strong opinions in them. For example, there is, uh, that section starts off with an abecedarian called the Mad Woman. 
Um, that poem is modeled after a poem by a poet named Tania Darlington. Tania Darlington, she has a book called Madame Deluxe, I believe, where she all a lot of the poems are persona poems in the and they're persona poems in the voice of a drag queen. She has an abbasidarian in her book where this character who's a drag queen is um mentioning all the derogatory names that they've been called type of thing. And at the end of the poem, the idea is, you know, this is what you can call me. I'm telling you what you can call me. It just spoke to me in terms of this idea that there's power in language, uh, whether it's being used positively or negatively. So I felt that's the most risque book in the collection, but I felt like I wanted Mm. to to include a lot of like stereotypes and very strongly worded language. It it might be a trigger warning poem for some folks, but I I felt that I wanted to do that in order to sort of reclaim, not so much maybe reclaim the language or the words, but in an effort to expose their ugliness for what it is and kind of in an effort to kind of try to, delve into maybe some of the controversial aspects of the character of Bertha, sort of. The third section, there's different things. There's references to pop culture in the third uh, section, but the third section is called promiscuous reading. So here Mm -hmm. we sort of have some voyeuristic experiences where we read poems that may have been inspired by things that Charlotte wrote about in her letters or events that happened to in her family or to her family members, things like that. Uh, th- there's a poem that's called, um, there's a poem that's inspired by, by Jane Slayer in that third section. So this idea of, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go slum it and read <laughs> sort of and read some other stuff that kind of relates to Jane Eyre, but maybe not in the way that or to Charlotte Bronte's life, but maybe not in in the ways we might think, right? But uh, the bottom line, uh, I mean, I think all three sections are are kind of fun in their in their own way. I've had some people say, "Oh, this is my favorite section," or "That's my favorite section." It kind of depends. And there's also this idea that's really fun, right? Uh, that throughout the whole book, there's persona poems. So I was always the kind of kid who like loved Halloween. And this whole idea of a masquerade kind of thing. So it's a very attractive thing when you get to write a persona poem. And uh, I think it's kind of liberating. And you can say things in a persona poem that maybe you wouldn't normally say as your ordinary self. Was there anything that you wanted to do that you couldn't do? That I couldn't do? Well, I said because of an editor or publisher. I'm not sure how much uh, oversight there oh, is on oh, this okay. work. But was there anything, you know, any poems that you wanted to add oh, or any organization okay. or, or just anything that you wanted to do that you weren't allowed to or you wished you could have? My publisher, I worked very well with her. It's an indie publisher of poetry that has three different branches under it, but it's Kelsey Books. And my book was published under their imprint called Aldrich Press. But my publisher was uh, very open-minded, to to be honest with you. It was a bit more up to me. I remember, the only thing I remember is that later on, like, I wrote 
a poem that was uh, called Thornfield Haiku. And it was that one was more like a lot of the images and things are inspired from from Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. And I took that one out and then I thought, huh, I wonder if I should have left that one in or not. But no, I mean, honestly, I had a very positive experience with my publisher. So she didn't really dictate content per se. Now, over the years writing these poems, like, yes, throughout graduate school and after I did have different people, you know, critique, critique the poems and the book. It did take me a while, years to sort of get down the organization and the order of the poems and all that. Uh, So that changed and that evolved. In terms of my publisher, I think that she was pretty open-minded and it was more up to me. I think it just, maybe for my next book that I'm working on, maybe maybe it'll be a little bit different, but at least that was my experience. I remember also thinking that, that it was really important to me to have a striking cover because that's, you know, we know that what counts the most is what you've written, but you know, <laughs> sorry, you know, sure. even you know, even when you meet someone for the first time, whether you get a good or a bad impression, it, it may have nothing to do with what the person is like inside, but we're visual creatures, right? So uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted something, a really a cover that I thought would represent the book well and the poems well. And I came across online, I did like a random search, and I came across this fantastic illustration by a Toronto-based artist named Kate O'Keefe. And she has these amazing illustrations of like the Brontes and and the characters in Jane Eyre and a lot of gothic sort of inspired work. I reached out to her and and asked if if I could use if her if her piece, uh, her she has an illustration called uh, "Both Sides of the Same Coin," and one is an illustration of Jane, and right next to it is an illustration of of Bertha. Um, this idea of the doubles, of the doubling that that goes on in in the book, and my publisher was okay with that. My publisher, you know, was okay with that, with me having found an image through outside of her press. So I think it just depends for everybody. If it's an independent, most poetry is published by college presses or independent publishers. And I just, I think it just depends on who you're dealing with or, or who you're working with. So, um, you know, the experience probably varies a bit from person to person, but she was very, my publisher was very open-minded. Yeah, and just to talk about that cover a bit, uh, to describe it to listeners, I guess, if they haven't seen it, but there, there's certainly, you know, the beauty in the on the left-hand side with Jane, and you have the imagery of the bird inside of the cage, which pops up in the work, and then on the right with Bertha, you certainly have some death and decay. The bird is dead. There's decay <laughs> within nature, so it is pretty interesting showing the duality of that. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to, I guess, finish this? Like, obviously, it wasn't done in one. <laughs> You're talking about your your thesis and everything. So, how how long would you say this work encompasses? Or Honestly, like I lost track, but I okay. Was, because <laughs> I didn't realize when I was in graduate school, I was trying to write like two to three different books at a time. I didn't realize it at the time, though. So, but that's what was happening. But the first chain poems that were ever published in a literary 
magazine were published in 2003. And the last ones that were published in literary magazines or journals were in 2016. So there's a big, there's kind of a big span there, or at least I think it's kind mm-hmm. of a big span. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I imagined it wasn't just, you know, one or two yeah, years. It's very, so. <laughs> you know what? It's very different. I have friends from grad school that within a year or less of finishing grad school had their debut poetry book published. And then you have other people for whom, for whatever reason, it takes like 20 years or longer. It just really changes from person to person, you know. Also, sometimes mm-hmm. I think that when I was younger, I had certain ideas for poems or groups of poems, but I think I didn't always have the complete skill set yet of executing that. So sometimes there there are ideas that I have revisited that as an older or as a more mature poet that I've been able, there are ideas I've been able to execute that maybe when I was younger I couldn't. I don't know if most people admit that, but I'm admitting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do, so, yeah. so it's fine. <laughs> We changed, too. When I first read Jane Eyre, I sort of associated more with Jane, probably maybe because I was closer to her age, to the age she is in the book. And then later on, as uh, certain things started happening in my life, I started sort of relating a bit more to Bertha, which scares some mm. people. But yeah, there's times, you know, I've related to other characters in the book or I've tried to view other characters in the book from more than one one lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my final question is one that I never thought about until I had read the introduction to The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. I don't know if you've ever read that, but she goes into depth about where she used to write her works. Mm -hmm. And so I wondered where physically do you like to compose your poetry or throughout the years, of course, this spanned several years. Okay. Well, in terms of the Jane poems, (laughs) there was a certain number of poems that I wrote, you know, in my bedroom or whatever, just on my bed or whatever. There's other Mm -hmm. poems that I wrote while in waiting rooms and doctor's offices. When I was in graduate school, I uh, started uh, dealing with chronic daily headaches and migraines. So that was a tough time for me. It's it could be it's very nerve wracking if you're experiencing high level of pains and you have to be in a waiting room that's full of people and you don't you know you don't know how long you're going to be waiting you might be there for like two hours and uh, you know when you're in pain you're you're not feeling good you're feeling anxious so I tended to to write as a survival tactic while I was waiting mm-hmm. in doctor doctors waiting rooms and. Uh, I got some pretty, I think, some pretty good poems out of doing that. There's other times where on campus, too, uh, I studied at Florida International University. They have several campuses, but they have one campus that's, like, by the bay. So I, I would sometimes uh, write outside. My method hasn't changed a lot. I always write first. Uh, I just write into a journal in cursive, and I don't really censor myself. It's sort of like free writing, I guess. And then I'll type it into the laptop and then I'll be start revising and start, you know, revising and putting line breaks and things like that. I've changed a little, but yes and no. And that I bought, this isn't like, I don't sell for these people. I don't like get any compensation, but I bought something called the Remarkable Tablet and it really is. 
So I write <laughs> on cursive on that with a stylus, and it's it feels like you're writing on paper, and you can convert your documents into text. So it's a really amazing thing, and then you can like email yourself your documents. So it's a similar idea because it's supposed to be like a notebook, the remarkable tablet. So that's what I use now, and I have found lately that I've like uh, been more productive that way, just because um, I have a lot of sensitivity to outside stimuli, stimuli, and one is a, a, a big sensitivity to light. So the night, you know, it's sort of like the screen is kind of like uh, that type of matte screen that the initial Kindles, when they came out, had. It's that kind of mm. like an e-ink display, right? Yeah. Uh, which is really easy on the eyes. So if I'm having a day that's a high pain day, normally I'd be like, oh, I don't want to come anywhere like near the laptop because of the light. But this is just kind of a tool that helps me facilitate and overcome some of my obstacles a little bit. I tend to write in the living room or in the lately it's just been in my home in the living room or the bedroom but but there was a while where I wrote a lot in like I said in waiting rooms of doctors offices I can't remember who the author was but I had found out that she um, had pretty debilitating headaches and she's a pretty prolific author and I was just astounded mm -hmm. that she's able to do it I don't know if it was Ellen H Hildebrand or not but just to hear that you go through the same thing I'm just man <laughs> that you're able to produce, you know, such art, I think is really astounding and even even more props and respect to you for doing all of that. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. Well, if you wouldn't mind before we get into <laughs> talking actually about some of the works, I would love for you to read one of your poems to our audience, our listeners. How about reading Jane Eyre? I think it's actually the first, isn't it? Uh -huh. The first poem that sure, my, pops my up pleasure. in your work. Reading Jane Eyre. I covered it with clear contact paper, wrote my name in caps across the foredge in black marker. The bloated book rested on my desk like a rainbow trout. Mrs. Lloyd poised on the stool, her bangs and bobs stiff like a man in a toupee, face primed with a thick coat of concealer. She hinted a secret at the heart of the text. I spotted it in her eyes whenever she laughed, flung her arms like tentacles, crossed her legs, private insanity hidden inside her wisteria wool skirt, tucked out of sight like Thornfield's third floor tenant, Linda Blair's precursor, the basket case languishing in bed. I read in bed on the bamboo love seat beneath the shade of my father's banana trees. I scarfed the pages like pork rinds, yucca chips, crackers slathered with guava jelly. I binged constantly, sunk my canines into text, while blurs, boys and girls, wailed in the background like Bertha on speed. I carried it for weeks inside the outer pocket of my East Pack, like Tic Tacs, a compact I'd flip open during lunch between classes, before soccer practice. Bantam paperback lodged between Agnes Gray and Weathering Heights at Adolph's bookstore. Its spine red-orange like papaya pulp. I plucked it from the shelf and stared at the cover. The forlorn wedding dress yearning for Jane's scapula, her small breasts. The warmth of her hips when she walks across the bedroom and steps into wedding slippers, then into absence. 
the foot's descent consuming as quicksand, the subtle curve of her arch sheathed by glass. Thank you. My pleasure. I have to say, I was a bit nervous. Why? When, you know, someone said there's some Jane Eyre poetry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh no, what's this going to be? But after I read that first one, you know, kind of a a wave of reassurance (laughs) and calm settled over me. And I, I enjoyed them. Like some of the poems... I, you know, are unsettling, but given the subject matter or material, I think it makes sense. But I, I really actually really enjoyed your collection, so I wanted to, to say that. Great. I'm glad that you did. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be hard. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly to be conversing, yeah, if I didn't. So it worked out well for both of us. I'm interested in this epigraph, uh, the quote that you use for the epigraph. That section, potent, you know, to a certain extent, focuses on, you know, imprisonment um, and, and confinement. But why choose that particular quote? So it's from, obviously, taken from Jane Eyre. I could not help it. The restlessness was in my nature. Then my sole relief was to walk along the corridor of the third story, backwards and forwards, safe in the silence and solitude of the spot, and allow my mind's eye to dwell on whatever bright visions rose before it. And certainly, they were many and glowing, to let my heart be heaved by the exultant movement, which, while it swelled it in trouble, expanded it with life. And best of all, to open my inward ear to a tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously. So this is from Jane's point of view. She's already living at Thornfield Hall. I thought that despite the images of imprisonment or constraint, that there were all, there's also a lot of hope and joy in these lines mm. and an excitement and sort of a spirit of wanting to live life and a spirit of of uh, seeing your knowing that you're most hopefully that most of your life is still ahead of you and just this feeling of excitement and and exhilaration and and wonder and how she sort of links it to the to the creative imagination maybe mm. despite things that might be happening in life that that are challenging. Um, certainly, ma- many people have gone through uh, challenges in the last. The world has gone through a challenging time in the last couple of years. I guess the juxtaposition of the two. But I think that there's there's still a lot there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy and there's a lot of excitement. I think in these lines. And so that that's a good preface you see for for your whole work. I thought so. I mean, Charlotte Bronte is sort of considered like a proto, like a proto-feminist type of thing. Cause, you know, in the book, she, you know, she talks about, you know, you know, there's some women that kind of need more, right? Than just whatever sure. the, they get restless than whatever the traditional roles are. We know that there was a time in history where if you were a woman, you were either like a teacher, a nun, maybe a nurse. Or a prostitute. Like there were certain times where there weren't right. obviously as many options. We know that the Brontes 
we know that Charlotte Bronte kind of felt at times kind of like she didn't enjoy teaching. She hated teaching that, you know, in her letters and things. Uh, she really that wasn't a pleasant teaching really wasn't a pleasant experience for her. I guess it wasn't her thing. But I don't know. I just I really liked that. And I thought that those lines sort of expressed kind of my life, Charlotte's life, Jean's life. And kind of captured certain things. It talks about the silence and the solitude. And sometimes you need that to be a writer. Sometimes we get a little bit stuck in the mad rush of every day. But if you're going to be a writer, you need to have or find a way to carve out some spaces uh, that you feel are safe and silent. Sometimes we get ideas in the silence. There's just a lot that sort of speaks to me. And also this idea toward the end of it that talks about, uh, best of all, to open my inward ear to a tale that was never ended, a tale my imagination created and narrated continuously. I think that that besides what's going on in the book, I think that that speaks to this idea of like if you're a writer, some people write every day, some people don't, it's different for different people, but this idea that even when you're not writing, you're thinking about writing, mm-hmm. or you're thinking about how am I going to organize this scene, or oh, I, there's that one line, if I could just get that one line right, even if you're not writing every day, you're like conscious, You're every day you're thinking about writing, even if you're not. I don't know, it's just, mm-hmm. I think it works on on different levels. Yeah. What does it say to you, Stella? What 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 did you think? <laughs> I well, it was interesting just because I didn't expect a block quote necessarily <laughs> from from Jane Eyre to Papa. I figured it'd be one of the you know well or oft used ones. Uh-huh. Um, but I I do. I am no bird type of yeah something like that <laughs> yeah. But I I do agree with you that even though you know this imagery of her walking back and forth and having that confinement, I, I feel like it does open up towards the end of that quotation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, this is probably giving meaning to, to your work mm-hmm. where it doesn't deserve it, but just the idea that you may have that confinement initially could have been just Charlotte's work, mm-hmm. but then you as an artist get to imbue a different life into it through your own poetry. Mm-hmm. So you have that creative freedom, which we see at the end of that. But that's just something that I, I may have seen from looking at that quote and assigning meaning to it as I started to read through your poems. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, it kind of struck me. Like I said, later on, as, you know, different challenges started presenting themselves in life and especially dealing with the migraines and headaches, mm-hmm. I started relating a little bit more to Bertha. So there's some of that in there. Um, I know not everybody espouses the theory or the views of Gilbert and Gubar from The Mad Woman in the Attic, which is, uh, that was a very, and still is a very important book, in my opinion, uh, an important text in feminist literary criticism. Um, But they espouse that idea, right, about the doubles, Mm -hmm. you know, because some people would say, yeah, that Jane's walking back and forth like that, kind of being anxious, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that can parallel, you know, Bertha being locked up in her room in Thornfield, you know, she's trapped walking back back and forth kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm okay with that idea of, you know, of the doubling 
And I tried to sometimes I tried to play around with that throughout the book. And like I said, at different points, I've have felt like different characters at different points almost. So I, I think both Charlotte, myself and Jane and Bertha are all reflected in those lines, I would say. Mm hmm. Yeah, that was that was actually a question I had uh, about whether you were influenced at all by the Mad Woman. Very Mad, much, which is something. Very that much I, so. Yeah. Very much so. I attend well, like, <laughs> circa. My chapbook hadn't come out yet, but it was like circa 2007, I think. There's a conference that happens every year at a different location called AWP. She was there. One of the authors. She was there. Like she had a new poetry book that had just come out. And I attended the reading and I was so she probably thought I was crazy. I was I was in total fangirl mode. <laughs> I had a poem. There's a poem in, in my book called Cross Dressing. And I had already had written that poem. And I just went up to her after the, I had bought her book and I went up to her after the reading. And I said, oh, the mad woman in the in the attic has very much influenced my writing. And I just wanted you to have this poem. And then I just handed her the poem. And then I said, it was nice meeting you. And then I walked away. <laughs> so that was kind of like, I just had to do it. So I had a fangirl moment there. Do you think that she owns the Jane and Bertha and me? Probably not. <laughs> I have no, no idea. We need to get some information. I, have, I don't know. I know that the other author, I, I kind of confused. I'm sorry because, I don't know, Gilbert and Gubart, it's hard for me. I, I always yeah. forget which is which. I know the faces. Sandra I know Gilbert the faces, yeah, so I know that's yeah. terrible. But I do know, you know, I go by the, you know, if I see them in person, I, I know. But I did write the other author, and I just sent her one day, like, a message through Facebook or something. I said, you don't know me. But the Mad Woman in the Attic influenced, uh, I think that was a very important book and it really influenced me. And I just briefly mentioned that I had written this book and I said thank you to her. And she, she said that it was always nice to hear things like that, that over the years she hears a lot of things like that from people about different ways in which that book, which is sort of this feminist, it's like written by second wave you know, these second wave feminists that it's influenced people a lot in different ways. Like it's been an important part of people's story somehow. It's been an important part of people's story. I think it's the kind of book, I think it's still kind of, in some ways, it stands, stands you know, has withstood the test of time. And I think it's a book that every so often I go back to. Mm. I have a new book that came out, actually. It was either earlier this year or last year. I forgot the title of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. But yeah. Oh. Sort of, it tries to pick up where the mad woman and in the attic um, leaves off. It tries to explore this idea of here's what's the same, here's what's different, what's changed over time, here's what hasn't, that type of okay. train of thought. Okay. So like a 21st century lens into mm -hmm. what they had written back then. Gotcha. Well, the theme of Jane escaping, or at least really wanting out, is something that I also saw in your collection. Uh, Jane in the Jungle Room comes to mind. Just many of your couplets actually end in this sort of desperation of getting mm -hmm. out. Am I perceiving that correctly? That's just correct. like there are several poems that, okay. Do you feel like Jane may be imprisoned at every point in the novel? Do you feel like she doesn't necessarily have that 
freedom at the end. I just wonder why I kept sensing like, oh, she's trying, she's really trying to get out here in some of these uh, poems. I mean, obviously the situation in Gateshead was not ideal. I'm convinced also that had she lived longer at Gateshead, that eventually John Reed would have broken her arm or raped her. One of the two. Yeah, that guy, he's not, he's a teenager already. The thing is that he's so immature and childish in the book. In my mind, I always thought he was younger, but he's like 14 or something already. In the book, when he's like, when he throws that book at her, he's like already 14 Mm -hmm. years old. But either way, like it wasn't an ideal situation for her. Obviously, it was better than like, you know, starving or being homeless or something like that. But it was not an ideal situation. It was not an ideal place for her to grow up. Then she goes to the very restrictive environment in Lowood, at Lowood. It's good that we find out that eventually there were reforms that was based on a real school that the Brontes attended. I think Mariah caught, she got sick and she died. And it was, you know, because a lot of the students were getting sick. And then the Charlotte's father, he got scared because Charlotte and Emily were at the school. And he pulled them out. So it's based on that school. I believe that the same thing happened in real life where there were reforms implemented in the school and things became better. We do read in the book that that at Lowood there were reforms eventually and that things became better. But there's a lot of suffering. That was a hard part in some ways. There's a lot of suffering that takes place at Lowood. Um, Just the weather, the landscape. The children are, they're not being fed properly. Um, a bunch of them, I would assume, are starved for affection. I would assume, you know, just going outside and wearing like flimsy shoes and stuff in the snow. There's a lot of physical, there's a lot of physical discomfort that happens, I would say, at Lowood. Um, and I, I think, you know, in some way, I was also going through a period in my life where I was having to learn how to work through or how to cope with physical discomfort. This is something that the students have to do because they're kind of stuck there mm-hmm. for a while. They don't have most of these. They don't have these students. They don't really have another choice. I think that when Jane goes to Thor, I think Jane is still appreciative of the education that she received. And she's appreciative of having met Helen and Miss Temple. So, I think in some ways she does appreciate those things and she she knows their importance. I think she, when she first goes to Thornfield, I do think she starts to feel a lot freer. I think she eventually she gets restless because it's a similar routine and she wants to kind of like mix it up. She starts to get a bit restless. But I think when she first does go to Thornfield, I do think that she does feel a lot freer. But we, we also know that during Charlotte Bronte's lifetime, you know, we all know. And we know people were judged differently. We know if you're talking about feeling imprisoned, uh, there's this idea that the sisters wrote under the pseudonyms, right? They didn't Mm -hmm. want to... They knew that if you're a male writer, you're going to be judged one way. Isn't there like a reviewer? There's like some famous reviewer who said if Jane Eyre was written by a man, blah, 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 and it was like a positive thing. But then the same person said something like 
if it's written by a woman, if the author is a woman, then it's kind of like an ab- abominable kind of thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or uh, what was her name? Was it her last name was Rigby? Is it Elizabeth Rigby? I think is she was like a a critic of the time, and she said that if the author of Jane Eyre was a female, it must be one who has long forfeited the society of her sex. So I mean mm-hmm. that wasn't complimentary. Or it wasn't meant to be complimentary. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There are there are images or, or this idea of her kind of wanting to be free. We know that she does feel, Jane as a character, feels freer in the book when she inherits. And she's generous. She wants to share that freedom with others because she splits the inheritance that her uncle left her, she splits it with Diana and Mary and her cousin, right, Sinjin. Mm-hmm. She wants to give the two, especially Diana and Mary, she wants to give them some financial independence so they don't have to be separated. Because Diana and Mary, eventually, they, you know, they were on holiday or on break or whatever, they go back to being governesses. But when Jane inherits her money, she shares it with them, and she she just wants to share her good fortune with people that she has recently discovered are her relatives because she thought she had nobody. She didn't think she had anyone. So money kind of brings the character of Jane. Money does kind of bring her some freedom. Also, when she goes back to Rochester, the playing field's a little bit more evened out, partially because of you know, physically what's happened to him. And, uh, but also because she has some money. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, there's this whole idea, Virginia Woolf wrote about this in her book, right? Like a room of one's own. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not going to say a lot of the time uh, in order to write, you have to have a certain amount of privilege. You have to have the time to do it. Yeah, you have to be able to afford to do it because what you're writing, it's not going to necessarily be making the big bucks or whatever. So you have to be able to carve out the time and you have to be able to afford to do it, right? Not every author is like a mm-hmm. bestseller. You're probably not going to become rich from writing poetry or, you know. So if you do, then fantastic, but <laughs> it doesn't usually work that way. So there's always been this idea of throughout history that a lot of writers have had a certain amount of privilege in order to write. Not everyone. It's just this is something, you know, that's a good book. Every so often to go back to as, to, as well. And that that book did influence me as well. A Room of One's Own. Mm-hmm. That book did influence me a great deal. And I think has influenced a lot of female authors. Yeah, it's been a while since yeah. I read it. I think I read it directly right. after reading Mrs. Delaware. Yeah, because it's this idea of literary sort of paternity Mm. I think it's a really interesting I think it's a really important book as well Mm -hmm. you have a few letters that are letters as poems or poems as Mm -hmm. letters directly addressing some of the characters Mm -hmm. and I was wondering why you didn't have one directed towards Jane Uh don't think I'm missing anything or even some other characters like Adele Helen or Sinjin was there a particular reason I think mainly those letters are a letter to Edward and then a letter to Bertha there's a poem that's about Sinjin that's in the book there's a poem that's about Sinjin and there's a poem that's about Blanche I think the letter to Edward 
I think that one was a necessary one that kind of lays out some of my some of my feelings toward him. Edward as a character, he's a mixed bag, obviously. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hate him. I think he's a mixed bag. Why? There is one though that talks about Sinjin, but yeah, it's not it's not a letter. I guess I did not feel as close to the character of Sinjin. I felt closer to the character of Rochester than to that of Sinjin. Maybe that's why a letter is more personal, and maybe that's why Edwards is a letter and Sinjin's isn't. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I know a lot of people have negative feelings, obviously, towards Sinjin, and <laughs> I'm one of them. However, he, he does have one good thing, is and that's that he's not a phony baloney. He's not a phony baloney mm-hmm. like Brock or Hurst. Like Sinjin kind of tries to live what he preaches, you know. It doesn't matter if you like him or you hate him or whatever, but he tries to to live what at least live what what uh what he preaches as opposed to the hypocrisy of uh, Brocklehurst. Mm-hmm. And then the other letter you mentioned, one of the other letters. Oh well, letter to I just Bertha. Helen. Letter to Bertha. Oh Bertha, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yep. at some point, I felt I needed to write some more Bertha poems, or or at least a poem that was about. What would I do? What would I be able to do if I could save Bertha? And sort of, and saving Bertha, you know, maybe I can also sort of save myself. Or we all know someone who maybe is experiencing difficulties physically or mentally or in whatever ways. I think uh, there's a lot of readers who feel like that, that they want to help Bertha, that you know, they feel deeply for her, for her, for her predicament. And so, yeah, I guess the letter to Bertha there, I think there's a certain amount of intimacy in that. But in terms of like Sinjin or Blanche Ingram or some of the other characters, I didn't really feel that. I know Adele is mentioned. She is mentioned like in one or two of the poems. She doesn't have a letter to her either. I think maybe if I could go back, maybe I would add a letter to Adele. I think mm-hmm. Adele could have probably used, now that I think of it, Adele could have, now, that's a good point you brought up. Adele probably could have used a letter. She's also someone who's a displaced, she's a displaced person, right? She's like this little kid that is all of a sudden, like her whole life changes and she's brought to live in a foreign country where there's xenophobia <laughs> mm-hmm. and other things going on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Helen is someone that in doing this podcast, I've discovered how important she is uh, yeah. in Jane's formation. And so that one, I was waiting as I'm reading all that. I'm like, where's, where's the, there Helen is a poem? Helen poem. Where's the Helen poem. There is. Yeah. Where Jane dreams of, of saving yes. Helen. Did you want to write any more about Helen? Is that kind of like the the big one for you, though, that you feel like you you got everything you wanted to say just in that? I I think so. There's also this idea that most of us have had a best friend that we've maybe lost in some way or a good friend that for whatever reasons you drifted apart. There was relocation. They got sick or they passed away. Uh, there was a falling out, whatever it may have been, but I think everyone has had a really good friend that at some point they were separated permanently, uh, whether willingly or not, they were separated permanently. 
from that person. And I also believe sometimes we have people who kind of come into our lives just temporarily, but they leave a big mark, a good mark, you know, on, on our lives. And we probably wouldn't be who we are today if, if they hadn't entered our lives at some point. For me, that, you know, that, that would include my friend, the one who wanted me to take the creative writing course with her, right? Mm-hmm. But yes, there's, there's this, uh, I think, this is my personal opinion, people get really hung up on the fact that they think Helen is too perfect and like too saintly and all that. For me, at least, what's important about Helen is that she's a good friend and she's a good listener and she tries to give Jane advice. She tries to console Jane when she first goes to Lowood, which is a tough place to be at. And I think that as a grown-up, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, even if Helen had just lived out the whatever, quote unquote, ordinary life of being a mother and a wife, I still think that those around her, those in her immediate sphere would kind of be blessed and would be lucky to have Helen. They'd be lucky to have Helen in in, in their lives, I think. And Helen is, a, like you said, Helen is important. It was very important to Jane. So, of course, if there's if there's a character that I like, you know, I'm going to want to try to do, you know, what they do in soap operas or what they do in comic books that they bring back the character. Right. They resurrect them. So. Sure. So I thought, what would Helen be like as a grown up? What would she be like or what? What can I say? Like, like I wanted to like come up with I, I, like the poem has like a conspiracy Obviously, it's made up, but it's a conspiracy theory of what this is what really happened to Helen. You know, kind of like, you know, people who are like obsessed a little bit about Elvis. <laughs> they they like want Elvis to like be alive and stuff. Or they, there was like an icon that passed away young and they wish that person had lived longer. But that's kind of like with Helen. With Helen, I, I just I wonder what would her adult life had been like and even if it was a circumscribed life I still think what we consider to be maybe a circumscribed life I think her adult life would have been one in which those around her would have benefited benefited from knowing her yeah so that poem I think encapsulates everything but it's fun too I think it's kind of a fun poem it is. I don't know how I feel. Well, I'll tell you how I feel. I don't like that you put her and Sinjin together. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out if their interpretations of Christianity would have jived well or not. I, um, I, I suppose it, in my utopian view, they do. And, and she and Helen yeah. kind of like, we know that women aren't supposed to fix men, that you can't really fix people <laughs> per se. But but sure. there's sort of, yeah, there's that idea of that, oh, Helen could fix him <laughs> type of thing. It makes me, doesn't it make you, does it make you sad in the book that he like, like I admire that he goes after his goals, but I, my heart always breaks for, for, is it Rosamond? Uh, yeah. That girl that she's just like, she really likes him. And then he like, and he loves her, yeah. I know, and he just like, it's kind of heartbreaking. That's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I, yeah. I think even though you're you're right that he's pretty authentic, yeah. uh, in his Christian display, but I also think that he might be 
a little too single-minded and yeah. perhaps like overlooks things that could be positive like she could absolutely be a great missionary wife he's just not giving her the chance because he feels like maybe love has no place in in good works so well, his yeah. sisters i think his sisters think he's overzealous yeah, yeah. but there's this idea that i want sinjin to be able to have it all like i want him to like loosen up a little you know fulfill whatever is god's mission and also you know be happy and in love yeah i wish i wish nice things upon upon all the characters even blanche even though you know we know she's a but <laughs> come on but at the same time yeah well i don't care so much what happens to her at the same time i can feel for her because rochester just mm-hmm. kind of uses her to get jane jealous really right that's that wasn't a nice yeah. thing that he did uh so i do feel bad for her on that point not on much else but on that point i do feel bad for her but yeah i i want most of the characters to be happy because uh, you've talked about Rochester a couple uh-huh. times, uh, I will say that the majority of the collection here is pretty negative towards him. <laughs> there are a couple maybe, oh, you know, middling ones or, or maybe positive ones. But I would say mostly negative when I was reading these. And, yeah, you just have a complicated relationship with, with Edward. Yeah. I think as a teenager I was sort of besotted. It was all about, oh, whatever, like, I guess, like, the mystery, and she's into him, and the whole, I, I guess I was a little besotted with Rochester. I may I may have known a Rochester or two as well. Wouldn't have been happy marrying a Rochester, though. I did write, there's a poem that is about him and Jane being in the park, and him doing a nice thing for an elderly couple. And I wrote that poem to try to show that there is, there is goodness in him. But that's, that, that still can't really excuse, you know, the gaslighting and the mind games and, and in terms of the whole thing with Bertha, I think it's complicated. I don't think it's black and white. I think if he had put her probably in an institution or something of the time, I don't think that a lot of the reforms had been done yet. We don't know what type of treatment she might have received at a place like that during that time period. That being said, I still get the feeling that her room is like this horrible place, right? Like, I don't even think she probably, she probably doesn't even have like a nice bed or anything. I don't know. It just seems like kind of a really horrible sort of situation to be in, to be her. Mm-hmm. I can't excuse Many of his behaviors, I can't excuse him. I can't excuse that thing that he does when he dresses up like a gypsy and tries to get Jane to, like, tell him personal stuff and he's playing all these games. I can't excuse any of that. That's, you know, of that stuff. Because I guess because of what happens in the book, he, he does go through a lot. And I think people do tend to forget that after she leaves, he does go through the ringer. He's, like, miserable. And I also noticed this, like, trend in, like, film adaptations where there's a bunch of adaptations where they don't – he still has both hands, but we know he loses a hand. And in a lot of modern film adaptations, he still has both hands, and I don't understand that. Like, what their problem is with him having, like, a dis- – I don't – an amputation? I don't know. But, I mean, part of the reason is that she feels, Jane feels that she'll be happy taking care of him and being with him when she comes back. I hope that it's a happy life. 
she says that so far it's a happy life and that they have a child. I think that he does pay a lot for, for the bad things that he's done physically and otherwise. I don't think he's the same person he was when the book started, at least. But uh, at the same time, I can't over, I don't think it's right to just overlook certain things that he's done, right? So yeah, it's complicated. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What are your feelings? Uh, have your views changed about Rochester throughout the uh, years or have you? Throughout yeah. the, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when I first read it, I was probably either a senior or junior in high school or, you know, first year in college and really didn't have much, I think, of like a feminist awakening yet or just a realization of what that might be and so rereading it in preparation for this podcast I think I started to think about different things so he is you know every <laughs> he's to a certain extent a, a bit of a, a heartthrob even though you know I know it's like but he, he's got this attractive yeah. the way you shouldn't about like him, him but, but also, you kind of do <laughs> I know he is you know, <laughs> problematic and you can't excuse nor should you really excuse some of these things but then also having empathy for him given the things that he had yeah. to go through so putting that into but I think a lot of people well. forget I mean, that a marriage. lot of people forget that yeah. and yeah. and 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 I I think um if I were like a director or making a movie I mean I would show you know that he had the amputation and all that and, Maybe throwing a scene with him like screaming like crazy. You don't see it, but you know, oh, it's going to be really bad for him for a while. There was something else I wanted to say about, oh, we talk, I've spoken a lot about the disenfranchisement of women and how things were. But also there's sort of this idea that in some ways he has been victimized. I'm not saying in the same ways as Bertha or other women in the book, but just that whole idea of the primogeniture. This idea of that the first son always inherits everything or that was the mm -hmm. practice, right? That that was uh, the practice and kind of like, I mean, the way he tells it, it really does sound like his brother and his dad kind of wronged him. People didn't usually didn't want to divide up their estates and everything. And it, it, his dad just sounded like a kind of a pretty immaterialistic guy. At the same time, when he was young, it's like he was young. He wasn't a kid anymore, but he was still kind of young. It's sort of like some of the societal norms or rules kind of hurt him in a way, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just, I think even, yeah, in some ways, I don't like to use the word victim with it for, for him. Maybe there's a different word. But in some ways, yeah, he's, his character kind of goes through a certain amount of suffering because of the mm -hmm. societal norms of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I was also interested in your, I guess, the balance that you found between modern and contemporary to Charlotte Bronte, just with terms or items or places. And I feel like for the most part, your poetry tips towards the modern or the, the things that you're referencing and I wondered how you reached that decision rather than staying in the same time frame as Charlotte and Jane I don't know I mean there's different things that have been done throughout time like uh if you watch the movie Clueless it's a modern like remake of Emma mm -hmm. right by Jane Austen 
There's been things like that that have been done by different people. As a poet, I draw from the world that is around me, from the contemporary world that is around me. An example of that, I suppose, would be there's a poem about Jane and Lacey Peterson. Oh, yeah. Right? So that case has always caught my attention. Lacey Peterson, this was a real woman. Most A lot of people know who she is because uh, the case gains a lot of following. She was like a, a pregnant wife, and uh, her husband was found guilty of her murder and of the murder of their unborn child. And then there's a poem in the book where Jane is thinking about Lacey. There's that famous picture of Lacey Peterson, you know, that they always show on TV when they talk about the case. And she's smiling and she looks like the girl next door. I I always thought just by looking at that picture, I always thought, you know, if I had known her in real life, I think she would have been my friend. That's just was always the impression that I got from seeing that picture. And I so over time, I've seen different programs on TV about that case. And then I wrote. I wrote that poem. I mean, partially as an homage, I think, to Lacey. Sort of, you know, you know, we know there's cases of many women who bad things have happened to them, whether they've been sexually or physically abused or abducted or whatever. And then there's this whole thing that we grapple in the book, like how much has Bertha been mistreated or, or not? But how much has she been mistreated? There are some people that have fears that, oh, like, what's going to happen to Jane, right? Some people, doesn't Jane tell Rochester, and if I were mad, how, you know, how would you treat me if I were mad? Like, maybe you wouldn't want to look at me or whatever. I know that's not exactly how it's phrased in the book, but you got the gist. That's the gist, right? Like, how would you treat me if I were mad kind of thing? Yeah, so that case has always stayed with me. It's just, it's not anybody that I knew in real life, but... Uh, just the image, that's the power of the image, that photo, rest in peace, AC Peterson, that, that photo of her. Uh, that's the power that an image can have. Whenever I see that photo, I think if I knew her in real life, I, I think we would have been friends. And that's the power mm. of the image. How about close us out with Letter to Bertha? Sure. There's an epigraph that's taken from White Sargasso Sea. And it says, there are always two deaths, the real one and the one people know about. Letter to Bertha. If I could, I'd save you. Flies beneath your bed hiss, Bertha, Antoinette, Bertha. Though you plug your ears with lima beans, syllables seep in like dust pushing past closed shutters, like loco weed creeping across the garden wall, the mute battlements, Better to bust out of your cell, to let the oversized Roche Motel burn before your so-called husband stuffs you in a body bag, seals you like a cracker in a Ziploc. I'd set you up in a beachside condo stocked with your favorite dahlias, Arabian Nights, black satins, Burma gems. I'd hire a good massage therapist and enroll you in yoga. I'd take you to a spa. Treat you to a mud bath. Restore those charcoal-stained feet to their original hue. Have a stylist trim that cavewoman hair. You'd take up kickboxing and swimming. You'd see a shrink who specializes in pyromania. 
who'd prescribe an antidepressant cocktail for those unpredictable mood swings and panic attacks. After shopping for a new wardrobe, a red dress, and matching slingbacks, we'd climb the Statue of Liberty. We'd toss your straitjacket into the ocean, and along with it, each vestige of sadness that has tinged your bloodshot eyes. I'd make you forget, Edward. I'd cradle your face in my hands, and I'd kiss you, a hypnotic lip lock, extinguishing each bad memory, obliterating suffering from your lexicon. Bertha, if I could, I'd save you. Oh, very powerful. Thank no, you so thank much. You so much. For, yeah, coming on and talking to us about your work, the Jane and Bertha and me. What can people do to support you or where can they find you online and of course purchasing your your works and everything, but anything that you have coming up? Now is the time oh, to promote yourself. Well, I'm still working on my next book. I have a series of superhero poems that I've written. And I have a series of poems that are about navigating life with chronic daily headaches and migraines. And some of the poems, uh, both of the, both of those worlds collide in some of the poems. If you want to keep up with me, what's been going on, the best way is usually to visit my website. For anyone who wants to support me, there are several ways to obtain my book. But you're welcome to purchase it through through my website. And I am happy to sign copies or if anyone gives it as a gift, it's kind of a nice gift to, you know, get a signed book. So my email address is found at comeonhome.org slash Rita Martinez. That's comeonhome.org slash Rita Martinez. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your art. My pleasure. Before I wrap up the episode, I mustn't forget from the airwaves and I do have some comments on the website and specifically from episode 4 Zombie Trek Siskoid says did what you said and listen to the old gimme that Star Trek episode after the Voyager bit and how fun that it really is cross promotion we mention you and your love for Jane Eyre from across space and time Jack Bond then replies, listen to Gimme 2, wondered if they'd bring up my question of telling a sort of serialized story over the course of not every episode of a non-serialized one. If it had reached a climax, would it have gotten an episode of its own? I'm not sure either the mystery reveal of Turn of the Screw or character study of Jane Eyre would have gotten justice. And then Siskoid responds to that and says, there's an episode of Gimme That Star Trek where we try to figure out what went wrong and how to fix Voyager. And it lays out many of the reasons why the show is just not capable of or willing to serialize the way Deep Space Nine had done slash was doing. Persistence of vision is what you're talking about, using the program as a major part of the story and a way to send it out. I don't think seeing the end of the Hollow novel would have done either source justice. No. Yeah, I... (laughs) I don't know how that that Hall novel was progressing both slowly and, well, I should say it was progressing both not at all as well as exceptionally rapidly because in Persistence when the man just grabs her and starts kissing her, I'm like, whoa, I've missed a great deal of this particular story. So it would have been interesting at least to see how, like, the conflict between Janeway and the housekeeper and the children and what the mystery was, but we just 
we now will never know. But I guess it would have been a nice story within a story and just something that you would have looked out for. But then also, if you despised it, then you would have rolled your eyes each time it popped up on screen. Rob pops up and says, yes, in all capital letters and an exclamation point. When you announced the show, I was hoping I walked with a zombie would be part of the mix. I'm a huge Luton fan. We covered him over on my Fade Out show, and this is one of his best productions. Luton always had literary pretensions, so it doesn't surprise me he turned to classic literature for one of his B-horror pictures. It says a lot about Jane Eyre that the source material can be this transformed, yet still recognizable. As you covered, Luton had a lot of non-whites in his movies, but never treated them as lesser subservient characters the film doesn't make a lot of literal sense but it still casts a spell very much enjoyed the episode that's my boss so if my boss is happy then i'm good to go siskoid comes back he says i loved i walked with a zombie not sure i realized it was a riff on jane Eyre when i did though interesting i discovered val luton's films all in one go during a tcm marathon basically i walked right after cat people in both cases luton took an imposed horror title and produced something lyrical on the cheap that's withstood the test of time much better than other b-movies with similar titles they're about something you know today our image of the zombie is essentially the ones from night of the living dead but in the 40s because i think white zombie with bella lugosi is closer to i walked with than walking dead it was pretty strictly a voodoo thing anyway thanks for covering this piece of tropical gothic that's an interesting term (laughs) i never thought of it that way ward hill terry pops on and says i'm listening to a podcast about a book i've not read referencing television i've not watched and film i can't recall (laughs) i love it stella i truly appreciate your look into the influence of the novel i'm remiss in responding but i'm very glad you had your guest on episode one whose name i cannot be bothered to take two clicks to learn it's okay it's dr lappin she spoke on the character of rochester as i was listening to you summarize the book i confess that my ire was rising as you were characterizing him through a 21st century lens and i was thinking about how a man of his time and place would have been formed your guests then address those very issues and we do in this episode as well thank you Jane herself is an exceptional person, as most of our literary heroes must be. This is probably why the novel has endured. I'm still listening. And then finally, from Brian Linton. Rob's fade-out episode piqued my interest in Val Luton's movies, but this one sealed the deal. I definitely need to watch I Walked with a Zombie now. I'm curious to see Luton's depiction of Caribbean culture, as well as his depiction of zombies from traditional Haitian voodoo, as opposed to the brain-munching zombies of modern horror films. Thanks for another incredible episode. And thank you to all of you that listened and commented and... I think that'll do it. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to Oracle at gmail.com, don't question it, and follow at Oracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book. Oh, I should be someone you